0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer and chapter leadership committee member of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy.
1: Hi, Jeremy.
0: This is episode 110 of Lighthearted, scheduled for March 21st, 2021. March 21st is considered the first full day of spring because the day before, March 20th, marks the vernal equinox in the Northern Hemisphere. It's one of two moments in the year when the sun is exactly above the equator, and day and night are of equal length. But then there's meteorological spring, which is the entire months of March, April, and May. In either case, happy spring, Cindy!
1: Thanks! Happy spring, everyone!
0: On March 21st, 1963, the Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in California was closed. And on March 21st, 2006, the social media platform Twitter was founded.
1: The German composer Johann Sebastian Bach was born on March 21st, 1685. He once said, quote, What I have achieved by industry and practice, anyone else with tolerable natural gift and ability can also achieve, unquote.
0: Hmm. I took piano lessons for three years as a kid. I guess maybe I should have stuck with it. But uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure I have a tolerable natural gift. Uh, Anyway, on to today's episode, we're going to visit Cape Cod, Massachusetts, for an interview with Ken Morton, owner of Sandy Neck Light Station in Barnstable. Cindy, please help me tell everyone about Sandy Neck and Ken Morton.
1: Sure, Jeremy. Sandy Neck is a half-mile-wide, six-mile-long peninsula on the north side of Cape Cod, marking the entrance to Barnstable Harbor as well as the approach to the small harbor at Yarmouthport. In the days when shore whaling was a major local industry, Sandy Neck was the site of triworks for the processing of whale blubber. Today, the peninsula is home to a little cottage community just west of the lighthouse.
0: The light station at the eastern tip of Sandy Neck went into service on October 1, 1826. The first structure was a brick keeper's house with a lantern on its roof. The lantern originally held 10 lamps and reflectors, exhibiting a fixed white light 40 feet above mean high water and visible for 9 nautical miles.
1: The original lighthouse was replaced in 1857 by the 48-foot brick tower that still stands. The distinctive pair of iron hoops and six staves that surround the central part of the lighthouse were added in 1887 as part of an effort to shore up cracks in the tower. A new six-room Queen Anne Victorian dwelling was built in 1880.
0: Barnstable Harbor gradually declined in importance and shifting sands left the lighthouse in a less advantageous position. In the summer of 1931, the lighthouse was decommissioned and its lens was moved to a steel skeleton tower 200 feet closer to the tip of Sandy Neck.
1: The lantern was removed from the lighthouse and the property was sold at auction in 1933. The price was $711 for 1.93 acres and all the light station buildings. In 1944, the property was sold to Fred Lang, a radio personality. Lang sold the property to the Hinckley family in 1950.
0: Since 2000, Ken Morton has managed the light station for the family. In 2004, he began working with the Cape Cod chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation to have a replica lantern installed in the tower in time for his 150th birthday.
1: The installation of a new lantern began in the spring and summer of 2007. The job was completed in the fall, and in October 2007, the lighthouse was relighted as a private aid to navigation with a modern LED optic.
0: I had the opportunity to speak with Ken Morton last month. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking this morning with Ken Morton on Cape Cod, and Ken is the owner of the Sandy Neck Light or Light Station in Barnstable. And I first met Ken more than 15 years ago, I believe. I think it was about 2004. And I visited you, visited the lighthouse twice, as I remember, and also visited you at your home one time in Barnstable. Thanks so much for being with me today, Ken. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. I was just remembering that the last time I I visited you at your home in Barnstable, your other home, not the lighthouse, but um, as I was driving up, there was a coyote on the side of the road, and then I saw your cat out in front of the house. I was a little worried for your cat, but...
2: Uh, The cats are all now indoor cats. OK, both to because we lost one to a coyote, but also because one of my other things is I'm a birder and uh, the cats kill a lot of birds. So it's better for everybody to have the cats inside.
0: I agree. Uh, I've had a series of indoor cats myself. Coyotes are pretty common on Cape Cod, of
2: course. Uh, Yes, they are. In fact, I saw one uh, prancing across the Chatham airport a couple of weeks ago. Ah, huh, Interesting. We're going to
0: talk about your involvement with the Sandy Neck Lighthouse today. And I thought to start out, if you could uh, maybe explain a little bit about your family's involvement and how you personally became the manager of the the Sandy Neck Lighthouse for the family.
2: Uh, sure. My uh, my granduncle Edward Hinckley, responded to a classified ad in the May 6, 1950, Boston Herald advertising a New England lighthouse for sale. And he pounced on it. Um, and so it, it's he and his wife were the bought it in 1950. His daughter, Lois Hinckley inherited it from them. And uh, as she got older, and, and it became more of a burden than uh, she could handle my generation, a uh, cousin and I uh, jumped in and we took it off her hands. It's now in a trust, the Sandy Neck Lighthouse Trust. And I'm one of the two trustees along with my uh, my cousin, but it's mainly my thing. Uh, my cousin Key Hinkley is uh, lives on the west coast and visits occasionally, but I'm the one on the on the spot here in Barnstable. You spend a good deal of time out there in the summer, right? Well, the, I spend a good deal deal of time in and around Barnstable Harbor. There are regular guests who have who have been staying there for you know their their week or two in the summer in July and August for decades. They're sort, of, they're sort of regulars and I, I stay away except, uh, you know, if I have to, for maintenance reasons. My time actually hanging out at the lighthouse is more in the shoulder seasons and uh, and even occasionally in the winter, just to see what it's like to, uh, to be out there with the wood burning stove going and in the, you know, in the bad weather. Hmm. Is it fairly cozy in the winter out there? Uh, when all the window panes are actually installed, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. The house is actually pretty cozy. It's under the wood shingles and clapboards. It's a brick building mm-hmm. and uh, that which keeps it surprisingly cool in the summer and pretty snug in the winter. And of course, it had to be that way since it was the year round dwelling for the, the keeper and family. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of the the light station. I'm wondering if there are any stories of the, the keepers and families who lived there over the years or any, anything else about the history that really stands out
2: for you? The general tenor of being a lighthouse keeper out there was it it's actually sounds pretty social. You know, In good weather, there was a lot of traffic and uh, some of the lighthouse keepers uh, kept an open house. So captains would would drop in and it was pretty social. That's the nice end of it. The other end of it is the, uh, the relentless and brutal winters and uh, all of the, you know, times when the whale oil uh, needed to be warmed because it was, it turned solid because it was so cold and, and you know, the, the tedium of keeping a whale oil light going, you know, in the New England winters. There are the, the wrecks and the near misses and so on. One particular lighthouse keeper stands out. He was a retired captain, Cap- Captain Thomas Baxter. He was the keeper and his wife and kids were out there also. And one winter, he was trying to negotiate the ice as he was navigating it from the light station back to the Barnstable Harbor. He got his leg caught between his dory and an ice floe, which caused an injury that led to gangrene, which led to his death. And he's buried in the Cobb Hill Cemetery here in Barnstable behind the Unitarian Church. But interestingly, his wife petitioned to take over as the lighthouse keeper and was granted that. So she was appointed the keeper for a number of years, and she and her three children ran, ran the station uh, until her children are old enough to be in school, of school age, at which point she retired and moved to the mainland. So in terms of actual drama, uh, that's that's probably the, I mean, it, it's, it's a tragedy, but it's also interesting that it was uh, ended up with a female light, lighthouse keeper back in the 1880s, or eight, sorry, 1860s.
0: Yeah, Lucy Baxter. Am I remember remembering her name correctly? I think it was Lucy. Uh, actually,
2: it's it's Lucy. She was Lucy Hinckley Baxter. Anyway, it turns out that Lucy Hinkley Baxter uh, was an ancestor of mine. Just one of those coincidences that there's a lot of intertwined families in New England and yeah. so on so well,
0: that's really neat they have that connection and it's neat that you had a woman keeper there of course there were a lot of women keepers around the the U.S. and that's pretty typical there were usually wives or daughters of male keepers and if the male keeper died uh, or was incapacitated a lot of these that's how a lot of these women got the position the Sandy Neck Peninsula, of course, is attached to the mainland, but it seems to me it was almost like an island lighthouse for the keepers and families. It was tough getting back and forth, especially in winter. You mentioned uh, Keeper Baxter, who had that accident between the lighthouse and and uh, the mainland. You mentioned also that you're sometimes out there in the winter. Is it like really isolated when you're out there in the winter? How does that feel?
2: Well, so well historically, you know before there were four-wheel drive vehicles and whatnot, the, it made no sense to try to, one way or another, cover the six and a half miles of sandy beach to go from the mainland to the end of Sandy Neck. So obviously everything was by boat back then, or possibly by horseback. But you, you couldn't move your supplies, and it took too long. You can row across Barnstable Harbor in 20 minutes. Um, but without a motorized vehicle, if you're trying to make the length of Sandy Neck at any time of year, it's a long way. Today, most people either go by boat or four-wheel drive vehicle, and that, that can be problematic for various reasons. In the summer, because of the uh, nesting of the endangered bird species, like the piping plovers and the least terns, um, and also the, uh, the diamondback terrapins breed on Sandy Neck. So that's also something that needs to be navigated when, uh, you know, when their eggs are hatching. But my personal way of getting out there off season is on my fat tire bike. Um, I bicycle out there. Really? Yeah. Um, huh. And You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty fit and it's not exactly easy, um, but you, it's they're, they're four inch wide tires and you, you air down just like you would in your four wheel drive vehicle and uh, you just keep peddling over the sand and you get there. Um, it's a great workout and it's really spectacular. I mean, there's no, no noise. There's no pollution. You're at a, a you know nice pace where you can listen to the birds and look around. So I've been just, you know, riding out there once a month or so, c- partly just because I can. And it's, you know, ride out there, have lunch and then ride back. That actually does sound really great. Speaking of winter weather or, or summer too, have you been out there for any big storms at the lighthouse? I've been out there more theoretically. I, I have every, every fall, I think it would be really fun to time a, a being out there for a couple of days during a big blizzard and just like, to, you know, for the adventure of it, pack out some food, plenty of wood and, and kind of go for it. But it's kind of hard to plan for a blizzard <laughs> and maybe not even a very good idea to try to go out in especially bad weather. But I did go out. I stayed out there a couple nights with a bunch of friends last winter to do some winter birding. And uh, that's when I realized one of the window panes was missing and all that heat coming off the wood burning stove was going right out. So we figured that out. But uh, the the storm seemed like a fun adventure reason to be out there, but it hasn't actually happened very much. Uh, On the other hand, in the summer, um, back when I actually liked fireworks, and (laughs) I don't like fireworks anymore for various reasons, but that's a side thing. But anyway, we were out on the sandbar at the end of Sandy Neck and a pretty severe thunderstorm was rolling in to the point where we started to sort of feel the ozone and the electricity in the air and, re- and realized that this wasn't one we could just sort of wave away. So we we abandoned the sandbar, dozens of us, and zipped the boats around the point of Sandy Neck and took shelter at the lighthouse uh, on, the, on the porch. And it was one of those, I, I've nev- never seen a storm before or since. The lightning just kept going for, it seemed like hours. Um And we were just standing, you know, out of the rain with nearby lightning strikes and the lightning just kept going and going and going. Wow. Um, and it was it was a great visual spectacular. Um, and we were, you know, we were safely sheltered at the lighthouse. And then when it all passed, we uh, went back out to the sandbar and rescued all the uh, fireworks that we hadn't used <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and then called it a day. <laughs>
0: That sounds like a pretty spectacular day. It was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So, of course, Cape Cod uh, has experienced for quite a few years, uh, you know, a lot of uh, erosion, and especially in certain parts of the Cape. But have there been uh, any problems
2: with erosion at Sandy Neck? The short answer is yes. Before the Cape Cod Canal was built, or dug, Sand w- would follow the currents from Plymouth, sort of south and east, and that's how Sandy Neck itself got built up over time. Um, the construction of the canal uh, blocked the natural migration of sand. So the main erosion problem is actually closer to the canal in, in Sandwich, where multi-million dollar houses on the beach are continually, continuously being undermined and buttressed and so on and so forth. They're all going to eventually fall into the water. It seems like it's sort of futile to keep trying. But a lot of that sand that's washing away from further west is getting deposited on the end of Sandy Neck. So there's actually uh, accretion occurring on the point of Sandy Neck. Um, In fact, there's a new small embayment that's turning into a small marsh, and the the, uh, dune grass is, you know, colonizing new, you know, areas of sand that Weren't even exposed 20 years ago, so that that's sort of the, the good news on on that end. Um, and at the lighthouse itself, it's kind of a crapshoot based on you know it, which direction the winds are blowing during a storm, when the tide is especially high. And some winters, I you know I or I'd go back out in the spring, and the beach in front of the lighthouse would be a beautiful sandy beach, and you know we'd actually. Acquired, you know, a foot or two of nice loose, a nice sand, and then the next winter it's all gone, and you're back to a barnacle-covered gravelly beach. You've got the tides, the wind, the weather, and you just don't know. But as sea levels rise, the general trend is the water is slowly encroaching. Mm-hmm. But it, it's episodic, and, and and it sometimes reverses.
0: Let's talk about a project that that really got started, I think, uh, just after I visited you out there. In fact, I remember I, I still, I think it's still on my website and I've seen it appear in other places. I took a picture of you standing on top of the tower in 2004 before a replica lantern was put on it. You know, I remember that day really well. Hard to believe it's almost 20 years ago, but um, yeah. I think soon after that, a project got rolling to install a replica lantern because there had not been a lantern on the tower in in many years. Was that something that you kind of dreamed
2: about for a long time, something you really wanted to do? Um, It was something that somebody else had dreamed about for a long time. Um, But let me give a little history there. When the tower was decommissioned in 1933, in order to make it clear that it was no longer an aid to navigation, they cut the top off. Uh, as you know, the lens itself was was moved and reused, um, but the actual top was, uh, as far as we know, just unceremoniously dropped into the channel in front of the lighthouse. And I've been told, I, but not confirmed, by a a friend who was a, had a friend who was a diver uh, that you can that at least a few years ago you could actually see remains of the old lantern room. Really. Um, I, well, I was really told that. Whether <laughs> whether that's actually what it was and so on, I, I just don't know. But in any case, a local attorney named Ron Jansen, who uh, born and raised on the Cape, his story was he'd been out on a boat in Barnstable Harbor, you know, when he was young. And, and he's the one who, who had the dream that one day he would restore the top of the lighthouse. And so he sent me a letter out of the blue in the early 2000s, and that got the ball rolling. At the time, I was just interested in making sure it didn't, you know, the house didn't fall down, that, you know, I paid the taxes, the roof didn't leak and all that. And then uh, the Ron Jansen jumped in and uh, retired uh, Coast Guardsman Jim Walker was part of our committee. That's how it all got going. And uh, it seems like well, it, it ended up taking about four or five years from beginning to the new lantern room being installed and the tower being relit.
0: Yeah, I knew Jim Walker fairly well and I knew Ron Jansen a little bit and it was it was fun watching that, that uh, project progress. Could you tell a little bit more about that, how the uh, lantern was fabricated? I know that was kind of interesting how the plans were found and that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And also I know that the... Uh, well, you mentioned a couple of people there. Jim Walker uh, was part of the Cape Cod chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. So that organization was involved. Maybe you could tell a, bit, a little bit more about
2: the process. Sure. So as you know better than most, back when these light stations were being built, there was a fairly standard design for the lantern rooms. We got plans and molds for the, for the cast iron from a, le- a lighthouse restoration project that took place somewhere on the Great Lakes. That's how we got the, you know, the the plans and the molds and a a foundry somewhere down south, and I I honestly don't remember where, actually cast the parts. The problem was that as we were installing the parts, which were uh, 11 upright stanchions, 10 triangular roof pieces and and the vent ball, it turned out that the, well, that the roof was an inch too big to fit the base at the top of the Sandy Neck Lighthouse. We put up you know one stanchion, then the second, and by the third, it re- we realized it was kind of b- bowing out. Basically, the roof was too big. Hmm. Uh, and cast iron is not flexible. So Jim Walker uh, put on his thinking cap and and uh, figured out a solution. and fortunately he had his, he has a machine shop. Um, and he filed down a little bit of on the bottom, outside and the top inside of each of the upright stanchions. Um, which uh, created just enough extra space to accommodate the slightly too big roof. And if you uh, if you're out like in on the water in front of the light station, and you look carefully, you can actually see that the uh, stanchions angle out a little. Um, it's not uh, you know they're not straight, uh, they're not perpendicular. We started to install it in the spring, had to uh, had to dismantle what we'd gotten going. Jim came to the rescue. And it worked the second time. And uh, just by one of those happy historical coincidences, the actual completion of the restoration happened uh, in 2007, which is, if you like round numbers, uh, the 150th anniversary of the construction of the tower. We, we didn't plan that, but it was, you know, it was a nice little extra touch. Oh yeah. And, and then we had a uh, the Hyannis uh, the Whale Watcher uh, that's based in Barnstable uh, uh, Marina here donated the boat so we could have a big celebration. And we uh, were on the whale watcher in front of the light station, had fireworks and speeches, and uh, mm-hmm. it was really gratifying. You know, the truth is, I, I'm, I've sort of happened into being the, the lighthouse keeper owner. It um, you know, wasn't you know, a passion of mine over the course of my life. But seeing the people who were really passionate about lighthouses and really care about them, uh, you know, the joy in other people's faces was what really made the event special.
0: Well, you had to feel some some sense of of pride and accomplishment at the same time. I'm sure
2: I I, I did, but the truth is, I didn't do most of the work. <laughs> you know, when when we had our first meeting with Ron Jansen and the rest of the the volunteers, and they're all explaining the the idea, and I finally I said, "Well, what what do you want from me?" And Ron just said, "Permission." And uh, and then of course there's the financial part of it. We uh the our little committee became a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation, and so we could you know, we, so we became a, non, a non-profit charitable organization. Some of the money came from a lot of people making small donations of $25, $50, $100. Um, but the bulk of the funding came from the the LaRusso Foundation. It's a great charitable organization on the Cape. The, the story there is a little sad. It was the, the couple who uh, developed an industrial park here on, on the Cape in Hyannis and did very well financially. And they had one one child who was killed in a car crash, I think, when he was in his 20s. And their reaction to their family tragedy was to start this philanthropic organization. And they have been donating money to the Cape Cod Hospital, to various organizations and agencies around the Cape. And they uh, gave our project a $30,000 donation, which was the bulk of the funding and, and made it possible. Wow. And then a local guy, VB, V.V. Lopes, who has a glass company, he, he donated and installed all the glass. And a personal friend of mine, Mark Forant, uh, who owns a lighting company called Spec Lines, uh, donated the solar uh, light apparatus. So it was a team effort from Team Cape Cod.
0: Yeah, well, that's fantastic. So uh, what type of, well, let me back up for a second. The, it became a private aid to navigation right after the new, the replica lantern was installed.
2: Correct. It, it's a private aid to navigation. Uh, the Coast Guard gave us a, a light signature of two seconds on and four seconds off and put it on the charts as a private aid to navigation.
0: And what sort of light or optic or lens, whatever you want to call it, is actually
2: in the lighthouse today? It's powered by a solar panel. Um, and a little and a little marine battery that's up there, um, so it does what a Fresnel lens does in focusing the light on you know one horizontal plane. But it's made of plastic. But yeah, it does a fine job. Sure. Does it have? Is it an LED light or or no? It is
0: an LED. Yeah, it is an LED in there. Yep. Okay. Just uh, if you could clarify, if as I understand it, the uh, Cape Cod chapter the America Lighthouse Foundation is still responsible
2: for the light at this point. Yes. It's great having local people who are emotionally invested and care deeply and who want to do things. It's like when somebody's offering to do something that you know is kind of fun, I, I tend to say go for it. And so some of the younger local Lighthouse found Foundation types, I, I think they really enjoy an, ex, an excuse, an opportunity to hop in their truck and drive out there a few times a year mm-hmm. and uh, check things out, make sure everything's squared away. Yeah, um, you know bring out the, the family and so on part of the deal that my fan the the my family has with the lighthouse foundation is a is, is a an historical preservation easement it means the lighthouse foundation is responsible for maintaining the actual functioning of the light and it also grants uh, members of the, the foundation access to the property so they have one of the few keys to the tower padlock um, and don't have to ask me permission first to go out there. They can just do right. what they need to do. Yeah. I believe one of the people who's been involved in that in recent years is Gary Childs,
0: who's the chair of the uh, Cape Cod yes. chapter. Yes, he yeah. and I
2: are in touch periodically. He's, uh, he's one, of those in, one of those enthusiastic locals. <laughs>
0: yes. Absolutely. And uh,
2: he lives in the neighborhood. I think he can see it from his house across the harbor, or at least he's often seeing it also, uh, sort of a side thing, uh, out of my own pocket uh, this fall, I, uh, we, the tower's got a new coat of paint. Cool. Um, it looks really beautiful. The, uh, it, you know, all the white is white and there's no, all the uh, chipping bricks have been uh, patched and, and the iron's been uh, sandblasted and repainted and it looks really nice right now.
0: I've got to see it again. I don't know when I'll be able to travel to Cape Cod again, but... Uh, <laughs> well, eventually. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's been a while. I haven't photographed it up close in, in uh, quite a few years.
2: A, f- a few years ago, when Jim Walker was still with us, it's probably been 12 years now, part of the project was that you know we thought the lighthouse should get a nice coat of paint. And uh, we researched uh, this ceramic paint that was supposed to be permanent. We'd never have to paint it again, was the... And uh, it looked great for a while. It turned out that it couldn't breathe. And so the, the tower was constructed to, you know, to expand and contract and deal with humidity. And, and it basically it, it could sort of breathe through the seasons. Um, but the ceramic paint meant that it couldn't breathe. There was an impermeable barrier. And so moisture got stuck under the paint, which caused cracking of the bricks and caused this permanent paint to flake off. And it was a good idea, but it backfired in a nutshell. But this past fall, part of getting it repainted was the, everything got sandblasted. A mason went out there and patched everything, sanded it down, looks real smooth and nice. And then we got the nice new coat of paint. So it was a good idea, the ceramic paint. Anybody who's thinking about painting their brick structure with it, don't do it. <laughs> right. I've
0: heard of similar things happening at other brick or stone lighthouses with uh, paint kind of trapping the moisture in there. So that's something to be very careful of. So what other kinds of restoration projects have taken place there under
2: your stewardship? The only significant one is replacing the roof of the oil house. It's a little shed basically with a slate roof. And so that's been restored. So the roof looks nice from the water just over peeking over the dune. It's, it's an unused little storage room now that used to be where the fuel would be kept or where, and for a while it was also where the, we sometimes call it the generator house. It was where the, when the tower went electric, that's where the generator was kept. Um, but other than that, it's just uh, general maintenance, you know, the, the shingles, windows, molding, mm-hmm. painting things. It takes a beating out there. I'm sure it does. And uh, that work is never finished, of
0: course, at any any lighthouse. As an aside, uh, that has, doesn't have to do with lighthouses, but you've already mentioned uh, birds a few times. And I know you're really personally involved in that subject. Uh, probably more than lighthouses, from what I gather you're... you're... Uh,
2: yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. So I, I have uh, read a uh, reference online uh, to your, your work in that area of photographing and writing about the bird life in the area. And uh, you've also served as a tour guide. Is, is that still going
2: on, the boat tours in the uh, area? The, the boat's still going on. I, uh, I'm i no longer one of the naturalists. It's the Barnstable Harbor Eco Tour. Um, and when it was getting started a few years ago, the captain's a good friend of mine and we worked together on figuring out you know wh- where the boat would go, what we would say in the different locations. So I, I sort of wrote the, uh, the talking points. I, I wrote a draft of the narration the birds are always a highlight. Barnstable Harbor in general and Sandy Neck in particular are fantastic locations for, uh, for shorebirds and wading birds. Um, in fact, if you're staying at the Sandy Neck Lighthouse, you can walk around the point to the north side of the point of Sandy Neck, which is one of the best places to see shorebirds on Cape Cod. It's more accessible than, uh, you know, than Monomoy, which is you know, the National Wildlife Refuge down there that people aren't really supposed to go to at all. But you can get out to the end of Sandy Neck, you know, by boat or by four wheel drive vehicle and you go out the right time of year. And there are thousands of maybe a dozen or so different shorebird species out there. Do you get seals also? Yeah. um, You know, as I was growing up, it would be noteworthy if we see like one one harbor seal, you know, per year. Um, But there, as is true all over the Cape, they're they're multiplying. Just this past summer on uh, there's a sandbar in front of the uh, cottage colony on Sandy Neck called the Horseshoe Bar. Um, and there are five or six uh, harbor seals resting on the sandbar you know, in the middle of the summer. So their numbers are increasing, as are the sharks. <laughs> because yeah. seals would make a nice dinner for, for sharks. So you get some it's, great white sharks around there? I, I haven't seen any personally, but friends who are fishermen um, have. Fishing in the channel in between the point of Sandy Neck and the bell buoy that marks the entrance to Barnstable Harbor, uh, it's a great striped bass fishing area. Mm-hmm. And fishermen have uh, said they've seen small great whites fishing for for uh, striped bass.
0: I know that's true around a lot of the lot, lot of the Cape. So on another subject that doesn't have, doesn't have anything to do with lighthouses, but it's something that's of personal interest to me uh, as a fan of uh, the uh, the work of Edward Gorey, the artist. And for people who don't know his work, he. Um, Besides putting together some books with his drawings and and texts that are uh, they're a lot of fun, I really uh, I have several of those books. And he also did the uh, the sets for Dracula on Broadway, which I think won maybe a Tony at that time. Uh, well,
2: he was nominated for both the sets and the costumes. He thought he deserved it for the sets, but he won it for the costumes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: His protest was he gave his Tony award away to a friend.
0: Okay. Um, but that,
2: that sort of launched him into, you know, kind of made him a more public figure. It was right. the 1977 production of Dracula on Broadway. And that led to his doing the animation that introduces episodes of mystery on, yes, on, yes yeah. which if there's only one thing anybody's ever seen of his, that's probably it. Um, yeah. But he, he published over a hundred of his own little, little books over the course of his life and illustrated many more.
0: People are probably listening and wondering, why are we talking about this guy? But You do have a personal relationship with Edward Gorey, right?
2: Right. I, I'm his first cousin once removed. In other words, my mother and Edward Gorey are first cousins. Well, and I don't need to get into too many details there, but I'm I'm a first cousin once removed. I'm also the, is only surviving male relative. You know, it's, it's kind of in a way similar to my relationship with the lighthouse in that it's not, you know, I don't know if I'd be an Edward Gorey fan. If I didn't, if he wasn't a family member, and we certainly wouldn't be talking about the Sandy Neck Lighthouse if my granduncle Edward Hinckley, hadn't happened to buy it in 1950. And and the truth is that those are two of the sort of the most interesting things about my life. And I didn't choose either one. And I, you know, I don't really know what to do with that. You know, it's, you know, you can't be proud to have a semi-famous relative, but it's certainly interesting. And it's a great thing to talk about.
0: Sure. And haven't
2: you kind of become a, an expert in Edward Gorey? It depends who I'm talking to. Like <laughs> to most people, I'm an expert on lighthouses, but I'm talking to you. And you're, you are by far more the expert on lighthouses than I am. There are people who live in the minutia of Edward Gorey fandom and are huge collectors. And I'm aware of that world. And I have a good collection of Edward Gorey books, too. But they're just the ones that are already in the house. And you know, I, I didn't go out and collect them. Uh, but I'm I'm on the I'm a director of the Edward Gorey House Museum in Yarmouthport, highly recommended museum. It's it's really worth visiting for children of all ages. You know I, I'm interested in in you know in his legacy and and his entire he left the all his royalties and proceeds from any marketing and so on to uh, various animal charities. He was an animal guy. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, so you mentioned Yarmouthport. He actually lived
0: in Yarmouthport. Uh, right, or some of the time, anyway.
2: Yeah, well, so as I was growing up, the the house that I'm in now, speaking to you from, was the the family summer house since uh, the old the previous generation bought it in 1962. My grandparents, my aunt uh, Edward Corey, my parents, and myself would all be here during summers. But after he made a lot of money with the success of Dracula, he bought um, an old captain's house on the on the green on 6A in Yarmouthport. Um, where he lived for the last 15 or so years of his life. And after his death, uh, that house became the Edward Gorey House Museum. Okay. Yeah. I need
0: to to go there again if I am ever able to get back to Cape Cod.
2: Well, you can combine visiting the the Sandy Neck Lighthouse with a trip to the Edward Gorey House Museum. Definitely. Sounds
0: like a plan. I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. So, <laughs> and this will go on your permanent record. So get ready. What's your favorite thing about being the uh, I don't know if owner is the correct word the the manager of the uh, the Sandy Neck Light Station?
2: That's a toughie. I, you know, th- there are what approximately six hundred to seven hundred lighthouses in the United States. Uh, um, it's actually over eight hundred, uh, but
0: uh, it depends on you know who you ask and the, you know how what you consider
2: a, an official lighthouse. So okay, okay so a little over eight hundred, um, and. Something like a third to a half of them are on the Great Lakes. Is that right?
0: Actually, I believe that if you count between the U.S. and Canada, there's, geez, I think it's uh, about 400 lighthouses on the Great Lakes. But Michigan, as a lot of our listeners probably know, has about 120
2: lighthouses, far more than any other state. So a number of them are still active and you know run by the Coast Guard or, or whoever. Um, and a number of them are decommissioned. A number of them are publicly owned, you know, historical attractions like Nobska in Woods Hole and, uh, you know, the ones on the national seashore and so on. So my, my point about all this is that there aren't that many people who can say, I own a lighthouse, um, and, you know, and, it, and it's private. And so, I mean, it's as a talking point, it's hard to beat, <laughs> uh, especially if you are, you know, are a Cape Codder. The, the, Sandy Neck Lighthouse is a, is kind of an icon of the region to take one example there was a traveling trade show in berlin 10 or so years ago and i don't know if all 50 states had their own booth but massachusetts had you know a tourism booth at a you know travel show in berlin and the brochure for the state of massachusetts the cover image was the sandy neck lighthouse representing the whole state of massachusetts wow the thing is there are there there are also a lot of lighthouses especially on the cape that you know tourists can just drive right up to and go in and look around and pretend to be leaning on it like they do at the leaning tower of pisa and that kind of thing but there aren't that many where you can get a really good photograph from a distance but because of sandy neck's position and barnstable harbor you can Really, you, the the cottage Colony from the mainland is really a beautiful view, you know, anchored by the, the Sandy Neck Lighthouse, and with the whale watcher going by. I mean, you know, half. I sometimes think half the point of going out on the whale watcher is just to get a dry, you know, close drive by of the Sandy Neck Lighthouse on the way out and back. Pride's not the right word because I, I feel like pride is something you should have if you've actually accomplished something, but it's really kind of joyful to be the guy in charge of this. Cape Cod Barnstable icon that, you know, it's in the Cape Cod Times almost weekly, it seems, just because there's like, there's nothing better to take a photo of.
0: Well, I have to disagree uh, at least a little bit that you've, uh, you haven't just sat back and watched place being taken care of. You've done a lot of the work yourself. And in some cases, you've given permission for that work,
2: which is important too. So, you know, you've been a good steward of that place. I do feel a, re- a responsibility. At some point in the future, as sea levels rise, there's going to be an issue about just how much effort are we going to put into not letting this fall into the water, but we're not there yet. And it looks great with its new coat of paint right now. in, in 2021,
0: something else occurred to me when you're talking about it being iconic a few years ago, a couple of years ago or so, I got a call from somebody that was scouting locations for a commercial and they were asking me about what's a good lighthouse to shoot this commercial, and I suggested a few places. Uh, Sandy Neck didn't occur to me partly because of the private ownership, but I, I didn't know what happened with that. Then suddenly I saw this commercial on TV, and there's Sandy Neck
2: Lighthouse. Yeah, that whole thing was was a hoot. It, it started with they wanted to film at the Long Pasture Audubon Sanctuary with Sandy Neck in the background. But I happened to know uh, Ian Ives, the manager of the sanctuary. And he said, well, I know the guy who owns the lighthouse. Maybe just ask him. So I got a call and one thing led to another. It was quite a production, um, which I won't go into in detail. But over the course of a few days, they filmed their commercial out there. Next thing I know, it's, you know I'm getting calls and texts like, your lighthouse is on TV. And you know it's, it was for a pharmaceutical. My only condition at the beginning is that it not be an opioid, and that it not be for sexual dysfunction. I, I wanted to feel that it was a worthy, a worthy pharmaceutical, and I, I think it turned out to be some sort of blood thinner. That that was okay. <laughs> and yeah. then it's it, and it was just watching the whole production was interesting. And then obviously, you know, seeing it on TV was was a was fun.
0: Yeah, as I remember, there's like a couple at the on the gallery outside the lantern, and it was, pro- it was probably done with a drone flying yes. over yep. the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, it looked great. It looked really great. Yeah. Well, Ken, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It's been a lot of fun. We could chat more, I'm sure. Uh, there's a lot of subjects to talk about related to the Lighthouse of DeSandy Neck, but maybe we can do it again sometime. And I hope to see you out there, like I said, in the not too distant
2: future. Whenever you come down, we can take the boat out. And uh, I'm actually buying a truck in the spring. So I'll be able, for the first time, I'll have my own four-wheel drive vehicle and can can drive out there. So when you're, when you're here, let me know and we'll, we'll make it fun. Sounds amazing. Sounds great to me. So again, thanks so much, Ken. You're welcome. Thank you, Jeremy.
1: Here's a little more about Barnstable on Cape Cod. Barnstable, which takes its name from the English town of Barnstable, was settled in 1638 as one of the first towns in the Plymouth Colony. The early settlers were farmers, but fishing and saltworks became the town's major industries. By the end of the 19th century, there were 804 ships harbored in the town. At the same time, Barnstable was becoming world-renowned as a tourist destination. The best-known family to summer in the town was, and still is, the Kennedy family at their Kennedy compound in Hyannisport. It was the summer home of President John F. Kennedy during his administration.
0: My thanks to today's guest, Ken Morton. It was a pleasure visiting Sandy Neck Lighthouse when I did it a couple of times years ago, and it was great to talk with him again. He and his family are excellent stewards of that property.
1: Thanks to all the members, volunteers, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. Check out uslhs.org to learn about all the things the Society offers. And remember that donations to the U.S. Lighthouse Society support this podcast, as well as the overall preservation and education missions of the Society.
0: Also, be sure to check out the U.S. Lighthouse Society on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, or any venue that allows you to post reviews, please rate and review us.
1: Rumi, the 13th century Persian poet, once said, quote, If love is in your heart, you will find your way home, unquote.
0: As always, thanks for listening, and...
1: Keep a good light shine, all in my heart. I'm gonna let it shine, all in my house. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine.